HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, Heritage Radio Network has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Sam Kotori. We'll talk to Sam about Winery 16600, talk about his dad, Phil, a little, podcasting, there's something going on there, and more. We'll taste one of Sam Siraz for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Sam Kotori is a fourth-generation wine guy hailing from Sonoma royalty, dating back to the 60s. His dad, Phil, started a farming company in the late 70s, practicing thoughtful and organic farming from the get-go and continues to be one of the most sought-after vineyard mines in wine. Sam worked in public relations, political campaigns, and cannabis before joining Winery 16600, the family winery as proprietor in 2011. The winery focuses on single vineyard wines and Rhone varietals in the Moon Mountain District in Sonoma. 16600 is the closest thing to wine as the Grateful Dead is to music. Sam Kotori, as I mentioned, is also a fellow podcaster. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Sam. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks, Sam. All right. So we're talking to Sam in New York City at his uh, imported distributor, Field Blend Selections. Thank you to Jake for that. Um, all right. So let's get right into it. So you grew up around a pretty colorful and I would say, you know, influential uh, wine family. I want you to tell me a little about your journey. And I mentioned, you know, PR and campaigns and cannabis and all that. I also mentioned your dad. Um, I want you to tell me about your journey in life and wine 
that really got you to the table here talking about 16600. So where do we start? <laughs> you know, was, we actually had a, a podcast guest on uh, our show we do at a Sonoma a few weeks ago, a musician named G-Love. And oh, she, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a, a well-received show. And we were talking about my family history just a little bit. And he, he had the greatest thing. He said that my life has been drenched in wine. Uh, and, you know, I hadn't really... It seems sort of self-evident now, but growing up um, in Sonoma in the 80s and 90s, it was, maybe I just didn't realize, I don't know if there was such a thing um, that it has become. So, you know, I, I, it was, there was well, wine everywhere. you don't everywhere. realize during the time. Right, you're in the, I was in the vineyards my whole life, uh, you know, making wine at, at my uncle's, Katuri Winery, um, but it was uh, not, I mean, as you said my bio, it was not like the direction in life that I ever thought I would be going. Um, and what I came to find out when I came back to the family, you know, to the business, um, that this is actually what I had been doing the whole time. Uh, you know, I was, you know, junior. Was that always, you didn't realize it or you always knew you'd come back or nothing was clear, right? No, you know, I... Because um, you even left the state to go to college. Right, I, I went to Nevada for you college. You didn't do the Davis thing or any of the other... <laughs> no. You went to well, Nevada I, 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 was, I, was, I was definitely not a good enough student to go to Davis. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, I could have... Uh, I would have thought somebody you know, had a little pull, but I guess... <laughs> no. Not that much Not pull. that much pull. You can't, you can't, pull, you can't pull those <laughs> grades that hard. Um no, you know, I went to Nevada. I was a ski bum. I was, you know, going to be a journalist. Um, I realized quickly that it wasn't going to be journalism. It was going to be the PR side and politics and worked on some, you know, statewide campaigns. Why was that? Did you see journalism more as writing or um, a little more thought and effort where PR is more razzle-dazzle? I, I think I had a better time making the news than telling the news. Okay. Uh, you know, That's I, the yeah, no, I think yeah. I, I was, you know, the, the creating side of it uh, as opposed to the sort of cool. retelling side of it. Um, and, you know, I was, I was a PR, I was a, a poli-sci guy. So, I, you know, I saw that, that connection there, um, started working, I worked for Jimmy Carter's son for a, a campaign. He ran for Senate in Nevada. I got to hang out with the Carters. So uh, you stayed in Nevada I, I stayed, for a little I bit? I stayed in Nevada. Okay. I worked for, a, a, and then... After the campaigns, I worked for a, a well now national uh, PR agency, but started in, in Nevada. The way the what happens here stays here, Las right. Vegas ad guys, um, and I worked. You know, I was uh, the bottom of the totem pole in Carson City. You know, hustling for these guys. But I'd go to dinner, uh, you know, with legislators and CEOs and you know, king making lobbyists, and they'd hand me the wine list. And I, and I didn't really like it. Just I was like, oh yeah, I know wine. I can order the wine. Did they hand it because they knew a little about the background? Or I, I mean, you know, I must have said something yeah. at some point. But maybe I, somebody Google it or yeah, whatever. somebody. And they would, you know, I would, yeah. I would be the guy ordering the wine. Um, so it was sort of when I got back that I realized like I was always a wine guy, right? Uh, whether or not that that was really like what I thought I was pursuing in life. Um, so how long were you doing the PR and campaign stuff? It felt like forever, uh, but it was really um, 2005 to 2009. Okay, so I mean, you got years. Four years, five years. More than dipping your toe. Yeah. And then 
I don't know if chronologically one runs into the other, but the cannabis thing is intriguing to me because I I do a lot of research, but I didn't really dig into what you were doing. But the way I look at it is you were kind of around it fairly early on. I mean, it's more than a thing now. Then it was. Yeah. So tell me what you were doing. Well, that was the other um, product that I grew up around. Uh, So it was was very very natural in my life. Yeah. Um, But after uh, I got laid off from the from the agency and you know the the 0809 recession um i found a job with some friends who had it was essentially a medical cannabis startup uh in in oakland and we had this big grow facility we're trying to get permitted and i was i was the public affairs and pr guy i would you know wrote big chunks of our application and would you know, speak before so you the city to this council. day. You know this business. I, I, yeah. Now in those days, it was just medicinal. It, it was. It was just medicinal. Right. That 2010 was when I started, and that was the first. Uh, it was Prop 19. That was the first time that California tried to legalize recreational adult adult How use. How long did it take? I forgot. Uh, it uh, that not, would that failed. Right. And not it, that long it, ago. So right? it didn't. That was 2010, and I think uh, maybe in 12. Or sixteen was one. Sixteen was really. I when think it, it was sixteen. Yeah, when I it really like twelve. Yeah, it was sixteen. Yeah. So that was you know another six years, and for sure, all of our investment dried up when Prop Nineteen failed in, in twenty ten, um, and that was essentially what you know. So that me back was home. close to walking into the winery. Yeah, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, which right. is I think when you. Went. But tell me a couple things about the journey. So you alluded to it. I know it. You kind of grew up in a hippie wine family. I mean, your mom, yeah. portrayed by your dad, was like this Jersey hippie. <laughs> My, you know, the I'm sure that there's a bottle up here. Yeah, from the the Rossi Ranch. Um, my parents met picking grapes in 1977 because. Uh, you know, my mom had just left a commune uh, and needed a job. You know, my dad um, grew up in San Francisco in the you know in the sixties. My grandparents thought that they could keep my my dad, and my uncle, out of trouble by taking them out you know out of the city and up to the country in Sonoma and putting them to work in the vineyard. Um, you know, failed failed miserably in the keeping them out of trouble part of the equation. But um, you know, definitely kind of brought so, the family heritage into back to the vineyards so if you and i got out of a car and pulled up and your mom and dad were there would i still sense that you know their sensibilities like i I, i'm not that much younger than them you know i'd say whoa i mean these guys remind me of growing up i mean they (laughs) your mom still carry all that and everything she an old hippie she's an old they're both old hippies for sure yeah you know i mean my dad taught me how to shave let's put it that way okay Uh, (laughs) you know uh, (laughs) bald beard with the ponytail kind of guy he is now uh right you know. but let's put it this way when i was working in as a, essentially a lobbyist uh my parents saw me in my blue suit and my red oh. tie and my little like paid lobbyist oh badge, man and they go where did we fail like how did we fail you you know every so, other parent would be like oh wow this kid's got a job <laughs> so like, good segue to this question so because of that, what drew you to the industry? Was it just that what was going on in front of you in Nevada? I mean, it doesn't sound yeah. like you plotted that career. N- n- no, you know, I think that um, in my time away from Sonoma, the the industry grew. And it's really, you know, uh, uh, in a lot of ways. But in a lot of what it grew towards was the hospitality experience, the fancy building, the 
the caviar and champagne, <laughs> the winemaker, the barrel, and people stopped talking about the vineyard. And um, what brought me back was... Which is really what your dad is all yeah, about. Yeah, this was a way, you know, what I see 16600 as is, is our way of shifting that focus back to the part of it that really matters, which is where the grapes were grown, how it was grown, and, and who grew them. Um, you can, all the rest of it is great, but if you don't have that part, none of the rest of it matters. I agree. And, and, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to sit with you is, you know, you walk the walk, talk the talk, been doing it before it was, you know, cool or hip or whatever. And in a good way, it's a big topic now. People are writing books on regenerative farming and guys like Raj Parr are falling off the map and going into this regenerative farming, you know, thing, which is, you know, all nice and everything. A couple last things. Um, What, um, what do you think of the cannabis industry now? I mean, does it seem like a missed opportunity? Are you happy it's where it's at? It's here, but it's not what it should be. Give me some thoughts. um, My feelings about the cannabis industry are a lot like my feelings about the wine industry. Well, there's Which parallels, is, too. There's all, there's all these parallels, and, um, you know, all the hype is about THC levels and, uh, you know, how many crops a year you got. And and the things that I enjoy in that world are grown in real soil under the sun. And, you know, you can have two strains from two different farms on the opposite side of the mountain and and. Let's talk about why they taste different, why you're, they smell you're different, more, you're why more they. Of a purist. I'm a, and I'm definitely, you know, I know how to roll joints. I don't have a vape, you know, those things. Uh, but the cannabis industry definitely isn't at a place yet where we can talk about it in terms of, of terroir and farming. It's still like evolving out so of this a, prohibition where nobody wanted to talk about where that's you know, a great you hit point. It, I mean, right? I get it. Because, you know, I do this and you do it and, right. you know, we're around it. I think a lot of people don't give a crap, but I think a lot do because a lot of people have gone organic food, organic wine, natural wine, and they'll realize, you know, that that's important. Um, will it get there? I, I, I believe, Maybe. I believe it'll get there. I mean, I believe if we keep talking about it and supporting small farmers um, and caring about our food and our wine, like caring about where our, right. where our cannabis comes from is, is a natural. I, I agree. I mean, <laughs> you can only chan- hope, right? Right. Chances are the guy getting high is, you know, organic. And if they're drinking wine, they're drinking natural wine and, you know, care about climate right. change and all that. So let's hope they're uh, right about that. And, but there's also still people who buy wine at, you know, the drugstore or the, or the liquor, supermarket. You know, supermarket and buy their cannabis because it's got a shiny package at the dispensary. And, and, that's okay who knows better than you as a pr and a marketing guy i mean it's you know i think you've become grounded where you understand what goes into everything i think a lot of it is just like when you make wine for 12 bucks it looks the same it tastes the same doesn't matter about the vintage or you know whatever right um which is kind of cool. All right, so let's move on a little. Okay. That's good background. You got, you got lots of questions there. So that's good you background. Did, you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so one thing I couldn't figure out is um, sixteen six hundred yeah. came around. What was it? Two thousand seven ish. First, first legal vintage was two thousand seven. You know, my dad had gotten bonded. Um, it essentially sort of grew out of. Um, the separation of 
Enterprise Vineyard, which is my dad's company, and Kateri Winery, which is my uncle's winery. And you know, my cousin was coming into it at that time, so you know, my dad had grapes that had been going to Tony. He stopped sending them to Tony and had to make them somewhere, and then so, had too much and had to get legal. So before sixteen six hundred, there there is was Kotori. Yeah. Um, there was your dad's successful business and all that. So that's sort of what he was doing. Why at that time did it make sense? Like, hey, let's get a name. Yeah. Let's put this under one roof. Was it kids? Like the way to get the kids together? Yeah. What about terms with your dad and uh, Tony? Okay. They're, you know, as, as good as uh, Italian brothers, brothers? and okay. family business can be. Well, you heard I stories mean, of the Mondavis with yeah, fist fights. I yeah. mean, none of that stuff. Well, right? you know, there was less to fight over than the Mondavis. <laughs> okay. That's a good point. Um, uh, you know, it's good. We, we uh, Enterprise Vineyards harvested uh, the Kateri estate for, for Tony last week. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so their family is yeah, still... It's, uh, it's, you know, really what it was, Kateri Winery didn't necessarily have room for all of us, um, and so I, I do think you know, in his in his uh, masterfully Italian father manipulative way, that Phil started you know making sixteen six hundred with the idea of like well, maybe I, this is a way that we can. I like where it get, went. Get Two's back. better than one. The yeah. more the merrier. Uh, yeah, and with the right people, right. you know. So I mean, it's a good thing. Um, let's fawn over your dad a little because <laughs> he right. deserves a little you know just, recognition. Just from your lens, tell me about uh, his influence on California wine. Um, I, I always wonder what what compels a guy to like grow organically or thoughtfully when nobody was doing it. Is that the old you know hippie sensibility? I mean, tell me about influence and yeah. tell me why. So, I mean, the the Phil, you know, the Phil story uh, and sort of the convergence of. Um, you know, he was he got sent out to the vineyards at thirteen to you know prune vines for a nickel of vine and <laughs> and you know that kind of thing. Um, came up in Sonoma working for this legendary uh, grape grower named Joe Miami, um, who you know definitely not organic. You you know better living through chemistry fifties and sixties and the whole deal. Um, but every harvest. You'd pick grapes in the morning, and Joe would send you out to like spread oat seeds, uh, knowing that there's going to be a fall rain that'll help set that seed and, and keep your topsoil. So um, it was like a cover crop. Well, a cover crop before anybody called and, it. And that. not everybody was doing that. Right. And, and what Joe did, you know, Joe most famously farmed Monterosso, you know, mountain vineyard. And in the mountains, you have to keep all the soil you can. At the same time, uh, somebody, the neighbor in Glen Ellen, I gave my dad a crate full of organic gardening journal, you know, Rodale Institute. And he started a compost pile and was, you know, growing vegetables and cannabis and Wait, whatever. Wait, started a compost pile with the magazines? No, no, oh, from the yeah. magazines. I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm busting. The, the magazines probably turned into a compost pile right. on their own. Um, and, and, but he didn't, you know, put those two things together necessarily until the late 70s uh, and actually the the wine that I opened um, is from the property that he first farmed organically and Dos uh, Limones Dos Limones and right. you know the landowner there um, there was there was some a let's family, pour that a, a we'll family, talk about it more later yeah, but let's a, start sipping it what are uh, we doing a here family living on the property that didn't want their kids playing in a vineyard where Roundup was being 
is great. And you know, I, I say this in, in the tasting room, uh, you know, say it to people and get the same, you get head nod, like 2022, yeah, don't, don't play in the roundup. Uh, 1979. The it was, roundup wasn't that huge then. I mean, it was, it was relatively. It was, and it, it was, was expensive. Employed. It was, but it was used. In, right. It was used for weed control in the vineyards. Right. Um, and so that sort of started the journey. Um, the interesting thing about this vineyard site um, is it neighbors Bob Kennard's vegetable farm, and that was the first uh, vegetables that Alice Waters organic vegetables ah. Waters would source for shape and age. So it's a little sort of like nexus of the of organic movement up on Sonoma Mountain. Um, and, you know, the, the, the joke that you know, my dad always says is it took him 40 years to be an overnight success. But there was certainly something that I saw from the time that I left Sonoma and then came back. And I, and I went to high school in Napa and I would take the bus through Carneros and Jeez. it would be, you know, the ground floor of every vineyard was dirt, you know, sprayed, tilled, the whole thing. And when I came back, eight, nine years later, they're still spraying Roundup, but they're growing a cover crop in between. And, and I was like, oh, well, that, that's new. Uh, and there was a paradigm shift, you know, in the 2000s um, that winemakers, both sides of, you know, the, the Mayacombs Mountains, Napa and Sonoma, um, realized that the better way to make better wine is to So there, there was some slowly. shift. Not everyone bought in. Right. They weren't, it sounds like they did cover crops, maybe a little more. Um, why, why, why does it take like a Napa so long and parts of Sonoma? Is it just the people, the business? I mean, there's just not people walking around with the sensibility that your dad had. I mean, I mean, everyone should be doing it. it. Right. It seems, it seems self-evident. Um, but first of all, I'm, Nothing moves quickly in the wine business. No, obviously. Uh, you know, it's deeply rooted in, in the way it has been. Um, and, you know, the other piece of it is it's, while, you know, it has this luxury good um, sort of top end, it's still an agricultural product with really small margins, and people aren't willing to take what they saw as risks. You know, if the the chemical salesman said this is how you you know Napa this is the way exemplifies to get to, that yeah. as much or more than anywhere on a, on a just because of land value right. and the cost of doing business yeah i guess i mean are you hopeful that uh things will continue the the thing that i find the most hope in as a you know in the wine business um is certainly more than ever people are talking about uh you know Climate is obviously, you know. I wanted to get into that. All those things. Because nobody knows better than that than your dad. Right. And then now that you've been on the ground for a while, you're seeing it. So it's a good, so right. go ahead. But the uh, point being, um, the wine business, because it's, uh, you know, this luxury good and has this sort of elevated uh, perception globally, has the opportunity. And, and in many cases, are taking it to to lead in regenerative farming and you know climate conscious decision making in, in the way that we do and you know 25 years ago there was no organic food in walmart and <laughs> and now there's organic food in walmart right and maybe Good it's point. not like the to the standards of you know 
Bob Kennard and Alice Waters in well, the that's 70s. Well, that's a whole other show, you know. But, but it got there. And, and you know, biodynamic wasn't a thing people talked about until the wine business started adopting biodynamic farming practices and talking about it. And, you know, now you go to Whole Foods and there's biodynamic macaroni and cheese you know, yeah, it's box. Yeah, crazy. Um, so if we keep doing that with the stature that the wine business has, um, pushing these things forward, um, that's that's what gives me hope, for sure. I think you're right. Um, I think the current generation getting younger is more aware and more demanding of that. So I think that's going to naturally push it, too. I think the old cult Cali Bordeaux guys, they don't think about it as much. And they're not being pushed out. They're just, there's attrition there, you know. So, um, so climate change as far as your vineyards and your estate vineyard is it is it um earlier picking is it i mean what is what what's the obvious major impacts it's um i mean it's it's endemic in the way we think about everything um it's your, your pruning plan it's your water use plan um you know pick dates have shifted, you know, we, we, so everything has changed the envelope, but, but pick dates have shifted. Um, you know, one of the things that talk about, you know, the, the Colt Bordeaux of Napa Valley. Um, one of the things that we've done, you know, there's, there's shade costs, there's, there's these misting systems to lower ambient temperature. Um, but the fruit zone has also risen six inches 12 inches depending on the what does that mean so, the fruit zone has so risen when you when you um, train the grapevine you know on the trellis right. system you're trying to have all the fruit that you're especially when you're talking about like top tier right. Cabernets, um you want it to all basically be on the same level right you, you know, kind of train it you, to you do tra- that you can train it to do that and, and so you're saying it's getting higher you, so you're moving in up a wire or two to get it away from the reflective ah. heat from from the ground. So you have um, to so you're, pivot on you're, that. You're changing the way the vines look. Um, That's interesting. To, to In reaction. And, and again, you know, you can only do these things That's so much one of before many you have things. to like, change a lot of other things. But I mean, what do, I forgot what you call it. The leaves sort of tr- right. trellis or... The canopy. And the canopy. Yeah, the canopy. I mean, canopy some people management. believe in canopy, light, heavy, some don't. Right. I mean, are you forced because of the heat? too? Uh, yeah. um, you're you're definitely more aware of it. Um, you know, this was a challenging year in that we actually didn't have a super hot summer. So a lot of people were opening up. Twenty two vintage. Twenty two vintage. Okay. Um, a lot of people were were during our like fairly cool foggy summer were opening up canopy, taking leaves off, and then Labor Day weekend happens and we're uh, 110 <laughs> degrees for five right. days straight, <laughs> and all, everything got fried. Um, but it is you know down to like row alignment and changing the way we're thinking about like you know you, you don't re- line your rows up parallel to your road or your driveway or you know Silverado trail or something you are replanting vineyards you know 20 de- you know 5 degrees off true north to make sure that there's just as much shade and sun on on either side of the vine you know um, really like s- from from the ground up um, that's crazy I, I didn't realize you know, that 
Yeah, so that's going to continue to evolve. <coughs> and then fun. varietals. Yeah, I want to talk to you that in a minute because when we talk about the winery and the wine, um, I just want to tell everybody we're talking to Sam Cotori. Sam is the proprietor of 16600, um, a winery on uh, in the Moon Mountain AVA in Sonoma. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about the winery. There's a lot to talk about. Like we said, the varietals, the vineyards, winemaking, philosophy, all that stuff. First, tell me, you alluded to it a little, um, how and why did 16600 come about? I mean, you kind of mentioned it was time to maybe stop putzing around with with, uh, Tony or whatever. I I mean, um, what it came from was my dad really wanting to show off the vineyards that he was farming in a more direct way. Um, and it started with our state Zippendale, uh, Moon Mountain District. The address there is 16600. Right. Uh, so if you want to look it up on Google or go say hi to my parents, you can, you can find Easy it Easy to way. remember. Easy to remember. Um, and, you know, the idea is we make single vineyard wines that are about, you know, being as specific to a place as an address. Um, and really, you know, taking the opportunity to that we have to talk about uh, the expression of place and talk about terroir you know when I things I love to do in the tasting room and it you know it's harder with you know in the market because you can't have as many wines out but um, you know to put two different Zinfandels from two different vineyards that are the same vintage same grower same winemaker in front of somebody it doesn't matter if you know they have a master psalm or it's the first time they've right. done wine tasting you see those differences, you feel those differences, right. and you have this conversation about about place um, that I thought was you know so missing in a lot of what you know the. the so that's really the mission statement, yeah. you know, to show off what he's been doing, um, to get a sense of place. I think you said in wine lies opportunity to express a sense of place. Yeah. Okay, so. I know you're going to say yes, but <laughs> is Sonoma the right place? To make these wines, and why, and maybe now we can get into varietals. Was yeah. was Rhone a passion, or it's better in that environment? It's it's both. Okay. Um, you know, I, I feel extraordinarily lucky to have grown up in Sonoma, which is one of the great places on the planet to grow things. Period. You know, Agree. You walk, you know, people come to Sonoma, and they have the worst allergies that they've ever had in their life because everything blooms all year round. Everything grows there. Um, and and for sure, there are these little corridors and pockets of the world where grapes grow into fantastic wine. Um, we're lucky to be in one of those places. Um, you know, I, I always joke, you know, Cabernet put me through college, uh, but the wines that we collect and drink as a family were almost always, uh, you know, if they weren't from California, they were from the Rhone Valley. Um, and, you know, so always a love and nod towards the Rhone. Yeah, exactly. And an influence. Right. So when you have Rhones on the list, that's why. That, that's okay. why, but it's also... Also um, the way they make wine. Guys like Jean Gonan and all those guys are farmers. There's, there's, they're, yeah. they're farmers. Thoughtful. And, and the other piece of it is, you know... It was 120 degrees uh, at Oakville Crossroad and Silverado Trail two weeks ago, and Cabernet isn't going to be able to last in that climate forever. And 
we watched these Cabernet vineyards shrivel and, and dry up in this heat wave, and the Grenache didn't look like it was, you know, sweating at all. And and it's a, of the varieties that we're all exploring, and there's, you know, others on this list um, that has a ability to withstand a changing and unpredictable climate. So there's definitely that piece of it, too. I like, think hey, this is something we can do really well and i think you're gonna see a uh, more than a slow roll on change because you're not going to be able to survive i mean napa may be the outlier because that's their wheelhouse but if you can't grow it or continues to get hotter you have fires um all right so i think we can talk about the wines through the vineyards and all that so tell me about the vineyard so let's start with the family has an estate vineyard and that is where you grow zinfandel so is that property where you guys live? Is that something that you've had forever? Is that the field you ran through as a kid type thing? Pretty much. Well, it was, it's a, the steep, rocky terraces that I ran through as a kid and fell down and lost all of our <laughs> soccer balls and baseballs. Uh, the, the estate property, um, about 1,000 feet elevation in the Moon Mountain District, uh, was on the way to a vineyard that my dad was developing for a man named Robert Kamen. Uh, who, the, who the screenwriter, screenwriter producer, director. You know, if you're in New York, look for uh, Karate Kid the Musical coming soon. Um, and, you know, Robert sold his first screenplay, bought this piece of property, uh, wanted to, you know, had a wine thing going, but basically was convinced by my dad to develop this property into a vineyard. So that that's, that's kind of a critical statement. Yeah. You know... I don't know Cayman. I mean, I know of him, and obviously he's brilliant and smart. I don't know if he's a slickster or not. But a lot of people are in Napa and parts of Sonoma as vanity projects. Right. How did he get to, like, like your dad? I mean, it's yeah. the greatest thing right. that he makes incredible wines, and yeah. he's this slick guy, and then look who's, you know, doing yeah. his vineyard man. It's awesome. But how did that... I mean, the your um, dad's a better salesperson than anybody thinks. Then, <laughs> well, this, this story has showed up in enough major publications that I don't feel bad saying it into a um, microphone on recording. Um, he sold his first screenplay, came to Sonoma to visit with a friend. Uh, friend takes him on a hike, and they get to the top of the mountain and they eat a you know loaf of Sonoma French bread and some cheese and smoke a joint. And at the end of this experience, Robert says. Well, I want to do two things. I want to buy this piece of property, and I want to find the guy who grew that pie because I want to get some more of it. And uh, well, the, his friend says, was a real estate agent. He goes, well, good thing is the property is for sale, and we'll go find folks for Terry. Um, and that's you know that's what it came from. Uh, and they they had those uh, you know those wine and weed similarities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, you know my dad had been developing mountain projects with with some other people and saw this raw land that robert had bought and convinced him that he could put an organic vineyard there which i'm not a ratings guy but if you look at ratings came and gets you know terrific ratings Mm -hmm. so the idea of how it's farmed and you know came and being this sort of hollywood guy or whatever that they're making thoughtful wines is really it's it's the it's you know the opus when phil wants to convince somebody to hire him to do their vineyard he takes them to the top of came and says you can't have this, but we'll get you as close as we can. Right. Um, so the estate vineyard is only Zinfandel? Only Zinfandel. Okay. Although, you know, Phil's never planted the straight Zinfandel vineyard in his life. No. So there's there's a little Sangiovese, there's some Merlot, there's some Alicante. Isn't there's... Phil straight oxymoronic? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. 
Okay. <laughs> everything's, everything's a little tiny. Yeah, so let's leave it at that. All right. Then we mentioned it before, but another prominent vineyard is Dos Limones, which yeah. is very close and dear yeah, um, to the family the, and all of that. Just give me a little background on that and what you're growing there. Yeah, so that is uh, on the Sonoma Mountain side of the valley, uh, about five, 600 feet elevation. Um, it's, again, like I said, the, the first vineyard that my dad farmed organically starting in the late 70s. And um, was replanted at some point uh, to Zinfandel, Sangiovese, and Syrah. Uh, so we, we get a little... Go backwards a second. Yeah. First vineyard planted organically. What was the impetus or input that it yeah. went organic? Was it the owner? It was, was your dad ready to try something? It was It was the owner. It was the owner. And, okay. and, and um, we actually lease our tasting room and office space from the owner's grandchildren. And they've told us very sp- it, it, importantly, it was the owner and his wife. It was, it was uh, the wife who said, cool, why don't you go and try to do this? Let him do this. You know, it's going to be more expensive. There's going to be mistakes And this made, is when? Is this 70s? This is 79. Yeah. Everybody thought he was a crazy hippie. I know. They, you know, they were all right. <laughs> um, all right. And then there's an interesting vineyard, the Rossi, because yeah. t- a couple things I could note, and you'll expand on them. Um, you're doing some blends from those, yeah. and there's an importance to your mom and dad to right. Rossi, right. right? So tell me yeah. a little about all of that. So the, the Rossi Ranch is um, just above the little hamlet of Kenwood, north end of Sonoma Valley. Um, it was originally planted in 1910 by wow. Val Rossi's father, Carlo. No, no relation to the jug wine. Right. Um, Val, you know, was born that same year. Sometime in the 30s, takes over running the property for his family and lived there until his death. Uh, in the 70s, Val hired my dad, and he was 76, 77, to help, you know, with the vineyard management and run the, run the harvest. And that was the year 77 that my mom was had left the commune, uh, first in Brooklyn, then in, in Katati, uh, living on the She top. was in a commune in Brooklyn? She was in a commune in Brooklyn. Where's Katati? Katati is uh, like, it's in between Petaluma and Santa okay. Rosa. It's California. Yeah, it's California. I never California. heard of it. They, they, they pulled up stakes and moved to California okay. and back to the land like everybody All else. Right. Uh, and she needed a job. You know, in that time, it was sort of like before... Uh, the the migrant labor really started to show up. Interesting. Uh, and it was like, you know, broke hippies that would go out and, and pick grapes. Uh, so my parents met there picking grapes. Uh, Dad continued to farm there. I think, you know, Katuri Winery made some Rossi uh, wines in the early days. Um, and then after Val died, a uh, new family purchased it and brought us stayed back with in, it stayed with it kept the Great. name saved the house and and brought my dad back into farm right in in 2012 or so um, so we make so, we it, make three or four different ones it there. must be a pleasure to continue you know emotionally you know the it's, actual food yeah. and everything i mean there's you know there's place. A, pictures of me you know three years old with my grandmother you know when you were little but then again maybe property. you were never little uh, i was i was always you know I've always been three, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll leave it at that. Um, I know uh, you grow and make wine from a vineyard in Oakville. We talked about yeah. Napa yeah. and how hot it is. Right. It's kind of unusual, and Oakville is like you know, like Park Avenue. Yeah, exactly. you know, in a way. This, it's is the, funny. this is the uh, you know Park Avenue in in the eighties. Uh, it's um, it, 
the, it was basically the first Enterprise Vineyards Napa Valley project. Um, it was mostly a redeveloped vineyard. Again, Oakville Ranch. It was which it had some, Oakville Ranch is the winery. Oakville right? Ranch is the yeah. winery. Yeah, so they have, wine, yeah, they have yeah. a wine brand. Um, it is truly like vaunted real estate. Uh, there's you, know, you drive past Dalla Valle to get there. Yeah, there's a that place, whole area. You know, there's a place where you can like stand and, and you look down and, and spit in the general direction of screaming, screaming eagle. eagle. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. it's like, it, it is everything. Yeah. Um, and in the replant, they pulled out this you know dead block of Chardonnay and uh, Enterprise Vineyards Phil and and Maya Commissolds convinced the ownership to let us plant uh, a couple acres of Grenache. Um, so to this day, cab although, and a couple acres it's, of Grenache. It's mostly cab. There's some like a, a field blend Zinfandel, some Chardonnay, some superb Cabernet Franc, like some of the best Cabernet. Really. Uh, Does anybody bottle just Cabernet Franc, or it's uh, always a blending thing? It goes into a lot of blends. Um, I was able to secure a couple barrels of 2019 Oakville Ranch Cabernet Franc. Yeah, it's uh, you know there's I'm 48 cases. It's it's available to to 16600 members. Um, Did it come out great? Oh, it's. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know that justifies the, it justifies the, the price tag. That's, that way. But that's the fun stuff. Yeah, you know the, that's what it's all about. You know, doing it right, but all the passion projects and everything. So, but uh, the Grenache is the thing I love about the Grenache from Oakville. Um, you know, you sit there and it is it's this neighborhood. Um, it has the opulence that you'd expect from an Oakville wine, just right. in a in a Grenache form. Um, right, and it's basically it's the only. Grenache bottled from the Oakville district. Everything else is, you know, Oakville Cabernet. You so, Groth and Silver Oak. And yeah, Opus it's all that. Yeah, you know, it epitomizes right. what that area is. It's just funny that that's there. I'm surprised the screaming eagle guys don't yell and don't let that stuff blow this way. We yeah, don't want you know any what pot. happens? We, do, we go to these Oakville tastings and we taste through all these Cabernets and then I pour the Grenache last and all the winemakers are like, wait, can I get some of that? <laughs> So, clear up something for me. So, Oakville, they're giving you vines to make 16,600, plus is Enterprise managing everything else? Yeah. I mean, we, we try and operate 16,600 as a separate entity from Enterprise Vineyards. It doesn't really No, work. no, like, I know. Yeah, I didn't mean to yeah, confuse. But, um, you know... It was just wait. We, so it's sort to of, that point, does Enterprise modern. manage Oakville's property? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then sixteen six hundred contracts from Oakville. two both. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And obviously, because you right. know the source and all of that. Um, and and the only the only grapes that we use for sixteen six hundred have been grown by Enterprise Vineyards. Right. So it's all you know within that universe. So. Your partners in these other vineyards, it's not what you demand of them. It's basically you're doing it. Yeah. It's not like Joe Schmeckelhead's owned this for 60 years and we tell Joe we want to farm organ. It's right. you go in there and, you know, do what you have to. Yes. Um, there's a couple other things. Steel Plow, Muchas Piedras. Right. What's going on yeah. there? Uh, steel Plow is, is actually on the Valley Floor, one of the few Valley Floor vineyards. Um, some Grenache uh, and some Viognier there surrounds a winery called landmark winery in, mm. in, in kenwood um cool site very well bottom known. of the you know the bottom of sugarloaf mountain it's got this just crazy gravelly soil uh muchas piedras is 
is my personal vineyard baby. A uh, lot of stones? Yeah, many rocks, a lot of stones. It's, I didn't it's, say a lot of stones, right, I said well, stones. All the vineyards that we go to are a lot of stone. Um, <laughs> okay. It's, it, the Muchos is neighboring to the 16600 estate. Oh, and, cool. And um, the property got bought uh, and there was a sort of decrepit vineyard there and we knew that the new owners wanted to make the vineyard productive and you know struck a deal to plant when, this when vineyard. did you go in and start turning so, everything around uh, 2014 was the the day we, the year we planted which okay. is uh, 16 was the first fruit off so of it should be really coming it's, into feeling good I think they're going to be picking it sometime while I'm here in New York and it's making me just a little crazy well, um, it was your idea to yeah, come here. Well, you know, <laughs> you come when you can come. Uh, and so Mujer's Piedras is uh, like n- mostly Grenache uh, with one long terraced row of Movedra and two dozen vines of Alicante Boucher. Is that the right soil to grow Grenache necessarily or not necessarily? The, the, one of the things that I love about Grenache so much, Sam, is... Uh, that it can grow in a lot of different places and okay. ways. Um, and it does. And it does. There's a diversity of terroirs in the south and in the north. planet, right? Yeah, right. Um, Spain. But it can show a sense of place almost you know, more uh, 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 accessibly than just about any other variety. So, you know, and that's you what you guys are about. Where, right. Yeah. So you put it in a place with, you know, warm just above the fog line crazy rocks uh and it's gonna make this really sort of crunchy acid driven but also ripe uh expression of grenache. i love that, that word crunchy it, you know it, it, it's starting to that, become overused but it's it, the right well, word when it when it it's is like this one is happens. very mineral what are you right. talking about crunchy what are you talking you wanna, about you want to feel it on your teeth you know um yeah that sounds great Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring details at pahempsummit.com so help me describe the winemaking is it a collaborative effort i mean are there a few yeah, people there's, there's a few people. it's not like you know philip matisse is making all the <laughs> way it's there's tell me how that yeah. works uh, you know um it's it's collaborations with people that we grow grapes for you know for their main job winery uh, started with a guy named Jeff Baker who founded Carmenet winery and then now is stone it was Stone Edge Farm um, so we make some wine with Stone Edge Farm and, and Jeff Baker and now his, his successor uh, Alejandro Zimon uh, we make some wine with uh, Eric Bradley who's you know, a bunch of uh, came up from Richard Arrowwood's sort of cellar um, so he's got good chops. Yeah, he's got good chops. Got a low key guy, right? Super low key guy, right? Uh, and then 
we work with uh, Isabel Gassier from the Gassier family in, oh, in I France. Oh, um, and, and she helps you know, guide our, our Roan production. Um, and then we work with, uh, actually, uh, Will Buckland's nephew. They have a custom crush facility. And, and so Jack uh, helps you know, kind of guide some of our winemaking in their facility as well. So we you know, keep it as complicated it's as possible. It's an interesting... But, you know, it's not the typical answer. It's kind of cool. Kind of fits into the vibe. We're farmers. Do you, you know, we're not right. Do you and your dad get in there? Yeah. I, I mean, you leave it to the experts, but don't you every it, now and then, like, something's right, really right, or not right? You know, more often than not, you find that what you're supposed to do in the cellar is, again, it's pretty self-evident. It's, it's, you know, the, the grapes and the fermentation and the wine sort of guide you. The low and, intervention and term. Low intervention. And, You're and, bringing and in the best fruit from, you know, right. smart farming. Don't, don't, just don't mess it up. Don't, you know, stay out of the way. Um, so so based on that principle. Right. Um, so we're very involved in every piece of the winemaking from, you know, calling the pick to, you know, how it's fermenting. And then obviously, you know, blending decisions and barrel decisions and stuff like that. Um, right know, on a on a regular so very basis. much involved. Very much right. involved. Yeah. Right. Um, is because of all the different things, you know, different winemakers, different vineyards, different varietals. I mean, I'm hoping the answer is no. I mean, there's not really a style, right? I mean, everything dictate vintage year, the yeah. the vineyard, everything dictate. You respect that, right? Yeah. I mean, if there was one style, it's. Um, a, it's always going to change from, from vintage to vintage and vineyard to vineyard. Um, but we trust the vines that we grow to reach a pinnacle of ripeness without sacrificing freshness and acidity. Um, so you know, there's a lot of people who pick the vineyards that we pick earlier than we do sure. because they work with a lot of vineyards that they can't trust it to go that far without shutting right. down. Um, and and so we are not afraid of the fact that we're in California and in the sun and and make wines that are you know. The, my least favorite well, question is what's your alcohol level because our alcohol well, levels are higher that, but I, than. But what uh, I what I know but, and what I respect and what I realize I like now is, you know, California has a profile. You know, it's warm and you can get terrific fruit there. But it's how you farm it and how you make it. You know, everything doesn't have to be balls to the wall. You know, right. so I mean that that that's an important thing, and I you know I love that. Um, before we do the wine list and we taste wine, um, you know, we talked about a lot of important things: climate change, you know, proper farming and all that, proper winemaking. You know, wine is more than just the liquid in the glass. It's a community. Um, I mean, do you look at it that way? I would guess so, based on the background. But people and how you treat them and how you compensate them and keeping them around. I mean, is that a common practice? I is it hard? It's, or it's For sure it's hard. Um, I, I think it's becoming more of a common practice. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot less, you know, people think of it as migrant farm workers and migrant labor, and that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, you know, we farm about 800 acres for Enterprise Vineyards, uh, which is, you know, not a huge number, but it's not a small number. It's busy. Uh, and there's essentially like 130 to 150 full-time employees. Wow. Um, and, you know, the, the, the base pay is, 
you know, in the, at this point is now in the low 20s for somebody who's, you know, coming in and working in a vineyard, picking up rocks. Um, so the answer so is the yes. The answer is yes. You have you know, to. The, the things that I'm honestly, like, the most proud of, and, and you know, I'm going to try to keep my eyes dry talking about it, uh -oh. you know, these guys who worked for my dad um, literally my whole life. Um, they're know, they're think, family. They're family. This guy, I think of Miguel Santoyo, who was, you know, 18 on his paperwork for the first two years, uh, you know, came across the border and, you know, however, um, you know, got legal, became a citizen, owns a house, has put three kids through college. Uh, you know, that's like... And he's still with you guys? He's still with us. How and old is he? He's... Uh, 50s, 60s? <laughs> he's, he's probably in his... He was he's sixteen. A young guy. He was sixteen when I was born. Right. So he's yeah, he's you know fifty five, fifty six. He does, he's a young guy. Yeah, he's a young guy. That's a great story. Uh, and that and was what the question was about. Yeah, that's, that's why would he be there if you guys were dicks or whatever, you know? Don't ask the people that are working for you to go spray something on this crop that you wouldn't want in your own backyard. And if you start with that like baseline, there's like a, a sort of inherent respect for humanity 100% um, that, that comes from I agree alright last topic on the agenda and I don't want to give you too much time on this is you've been podcasting for a while yeah not like the last 20 minutes when it's been hot <laughs> but you've been doing it yeah. um, and it's a good podcast Thank and you. it does pretty well yeah. you know yeah. I mean I have our company charts everything right. and you see what everyone's doing you know, a lot of people do this and don't show up, you know, in any of the charts you guys do. So tell me about the podcast and tell uh, me. Yeah. It's, it's a bunch of guys. A bunch of guys. Um, you know, kind of grew out of, it actually grew out of like the local public access radio station. Um, but the concept was always, uh, there's a grower perspective, which I bring. There's this guy named Bart Hansen who's worked in the Tell summers. everyone the name. Uh, the, the Winemakers. The Winemakers on Radio on Misfits. Radio Misfits podcast network. You can get it on all the Wherever places. you get pods. The same place that you got this podcast you can right. find us. When you're done listening to Sam's show, listen to our show. That's exactly um, it. And so we have the grower perspective, the, the wine perspective, uh, sommelier, so the sort of sales side of it, and this old Chicago radio guy who represents sort of your average Joe consumer. Um, and it started, we would just bring topics and it would be the four of us. Um, and then, you know, a few months in, that was 2017. Uh, and then a few months into it, we started um, bringing in folks to interview. And for the most part, people who we interview are, are, you know, not the, the marquee names, but they're people who have side projects and, you know, work as cellar masters and, you know, small, small wineries, small farmers. Um, you know, so you do something right similar to what I do. When I started this, and you have a PR background, I have a sales and marketing background. It's like, who's the biggest guy I can get? Who's right. the most famous? Right. You know, and, and that helps bring people in. But today, for me, it's morphed to the story. Right. And the reason you and I are sitting here is obviously everyone who's been listening. There's a very cool story here, and it seems like that's what's important to you. My favorite thing, you know, it's, it's obviously it's been great for 16600 and people listen and come to the tasting room because of that. But my favorite thing is when you know, loyal 16600 customers 
who listen to the podcast and I see them like post on social media that they're drinking a bottle of wine that was, you know, one of our recent guests and they went out and they finally uh-huh. found that bottle and, and are now, you know, are on a dinner table in North Carolina or Minneapolis or wherever telling that story to whoever they're having dinner with. And that's just like, there's yeah. more of that going yeah. on than you yeah. think because people that choose to listen to your podcast or this have made a decision and there's an intimate relationship and they're listening. So the idea that, you know, they're going to try this wine after this or that stuff, it's always going to happen. So it's the winemakers on Radio Misfits. It's been going on, what, sounds like five years? We already. are closing in our 250th episode. Me too. Yeah. So it should, you know... Um, how frequent? Weekly, pretty much. We uh, we try and be weekly. Okay, I mean yeah. I know and, that. And that's... you know we um, we don't do any editing. Either <laughs> your, do we. Your two pages of notes that you wrote up are no. two more pages that I've never written. It's, it's pretty trust me. There's no editing okay. here. I'm not doing anything, yeah. and I didn't get to all of this stuff. <laughs> all right, so that's uh, the winemakers on radio misfits. Um, after listening to Sam, you can get the perspective that you know. Wine guy, wine family, wine maker, wine grower, and he surrounded himself with some other uh, cool guys. Um, so keep that in mind. All right, Sam, nobody leaves here without doing the wine list. The wine list is five questions. We've asked the same five questions to everyone for almost 250 podcasts. Nobody escapes it. Uh, be brief. Uh, people love hearing what guys like you were drinking. I post everything on social media. You know, we have a whole data bank and all. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? And that is, what's in your fridge at home? What's interesting you? You're traveling in New York and D.C. Maybe you have exposure to stuff here that you right. Tell me some of the things you're drinking right now. Um, you know, at, at home, uh, I drink a lot of more white wine than red wine. Okay. Um, what? My favorite thing, my it started during the during the you know the quarantine times. Uh, really good friends of mine in Sonoma, uh, the assistant or associate winemaker for Bedrock, but his his personal label, Desire Lines Wines, and he makes fantastic Riesling uh, from different vineyards. I, I gotta look Sonoma. for that. And uh, yeah, I think I think they get so to the little Maker's bit. Desire. Desire Who's Lines. Who's the guy? Uh, Cody Rasmussen. Cody, Cody Rasmussen. Cody and Emily. and yeah. it's a Riesling from the grapes or from where? Uh, the ones that the one that I really love is Cole Ranch. Uh, okay. Up in up in you know Anderson Valley area. Well, give me a couple of the things you drink. Uh, you know, that's I, a good one. That's why I asked yeah, you the no, question. Yeah, no, that's that's um, you know I I love northern and southern Rhones. Uh, so there's you know a lot of San Josef. Uh, Any water. makers that rise to your top? Uh, you know I I buy wine from this crazy guy in new york and i know the people who we're going to listen to this know him lyle fast and i don't sure. think mind that i call him crazy guy sure uh, and so he you know gets all these wild small producers and i'll buy some stuff from him so you're open to try stuff you haven't yeah, heard of you know i you leave um, it to lyle he's I, out there I, pounding you know and i have things that i love and that are my favorites but i you know there's so much wine out there that i uh, I, I try and keep it fresh all right so give me so i could post yeah Give me one wine and maker that came through a while that you like. Can you remember? Um, I can't remember any names off the top of my from the top of my brain. Um, but you know what I'll do is I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, Domaine Gossier. Um, they're in Nîmes. 
Um, and I, you know, making anytime I stuff. can find their wine, I'll buy a bottle. Isabel's I agree with helps you us that. a lot, and, and their, you know, their family, good farming, uh, good winemaking, Cote de Rhone, the whole, the whole deal. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna post that stuff. Okay. Second question, maybe the goofiest, but I'm pretty sure you'd be happy with this question. Okay. Favorite wine and food pairing, not what you. <laughs> Good setup, right? right? Now what you think is good, what you like. And I know it's not something you eat every night, week, yeah. month, but when you do it, it's the old ooh man. This is and you, there's a grape nation rule. You can't say champagne and oysters. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Um I believe in uh, I love a guy who closes his eyes to answer a question <laughs> like that. Go ahead. Uh I very much want to like not deep platform but you know kind of like bring it down a little bit with the with the wine and food pairings and with that i started an event that we do at the tasting room called tacos du Rhone. and um, love that you know i, I love uh like a, you know an al pastor taco with and a glass of grenache Okay. Uh, you know, I, so Al Pastor, which has got some body. Yeah, it's got some body. It's got the, the sweetness. It's got the, you know, it's not like super, it's, it's salty, but it's not over the top. Uh, you don't want it totally spicy because you want to catch some of those other flavors. I so think that's a like great answer. I, I could tell you two things. Nobody's ever given me that answer before. And the other one is for some reason, I think you're expert on that answer. Okay. <laughs> we'll move along on that. All right. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And I think, I know you travel, yeah. and I know COVID kind of hit everyone. Right. Give me stuff up around you. So when people hit that area, you know, coming from you, who, like, yeah. where's a place the list is cool, the people are great, the vibe is right, they're knowledgeable? Yeah, there's two places that come to mind immediately. Um, one in Napa, one in Sonoma. In Napa, um, it's a place called Torque, T-O-R-C. Um, it's a restaurant great, too, yeah, right? Restaurant, yeah, restaurant and great wine great list. Great wine list, great food, uh, great cocktail program. Um, you know, they're in the heart of Napa. They have all those sort of Napa things that you expect. There's also some you know fun stuff to dig into a little bit. From so all that's a good world. one. Um, and then lately, it's these friends of mine who opened a, the spot on the plaza called Valley Bar and Bottle. Um, I've heard about it. Yeah, I heard it's terrific. It's it's terrific. Who are the people um, behind it? So it's. Uh, Lauren Feldman, Tanner Wally, Emma Lip, and Steph Rieger. And they all have some New York connections. Tanner worked for, um, uh, what's the guy with the beard? Uh, Terroir. So like, uh, Paul Greco. Yeah, Paul Greco. Um, I think that Lauren and and Emma were all at... Um, In New York? The, the, not the Spotted Pig, the... You know, they're the all Breslin like, or something. They were, yeah, they had some like New York restaurant yeah. connections. Also, it's, it's uh, got a good hybrid. It's got a good. It's got that. It's got that sort of uh, you know a New York sensibility. Is but there also, food there? The food is fantastic. It is. Food okay. is fantastic. So it's just a good all around bottle place. shop. Great wine list. You know, it has. It goes some natural, um, but a lot of like you know. They're the first question that they ask uh, a suppliers. You know, what's the farming like? Right. Um, that's, that's important to them. That matters so much. All right, those are good ones. Like I said, I'll post them. All right, fourth, fourth question, favorite all-time wine. When I initially structured this question, I 
brought people in where I wanted to know what their most expensive and rare wine they ever tasted. I can give a crap about that. I've said this 200 times. I want to know about the wine that was either a gateway, life-changing, changed the way you thought about it, still important to you. Could be one, could be two. Yeah. What Do, the, the, do you have a wine like that that you could cite? There's two that come to mind immediately. Um, and, you know, for me, it's wines that, like, when you get down to the last sip in your glass, you don't want to drink it because you want to have something there to keep smelling. Um, and the first one that was, like, really hit home for me was uh, 1997 uh, Sangiovese that my uncle made from, from Cayman's property. Really? Uh, and it was just... It was 97 was a good year 97 in uh, was a great, California. Great year California, transcendent bottle of wine. Um, you know, and were the grapes, grapes they weren't were, that young or anything they were and that was you know that vineyard probably been planted four or five years earlier okay young young vines um you know it was when we were all chasing sangiovese as sort of like the next cabernet in sonoma and it never really never really took off the been since been cut over to grenache actually um but that was that's one that like i was like oh yeah there's there's something here uh the other one um that I think of all the time when I think of like my favorite wine moment, uh, 2010 Araujo Syrah. So 10 was another great vineyard. Araujo was a great maker, a luxury maker, but Syrah was not their big wheelhouse. So he probably spent a lot of time, you know, in the vines and I don't think I've had it. Um, I'd like to find I've since found a couple and stuck them in my cellar. Uh, hopefully, get I'm sure back you can find them for four or five hundred a bottle. Yeah, you know, it was, yeah. it, was, it, was no it wasn't, uh, it wasn't quite that bad. But right, now la- that I- <laughs> last question, and then we're going to taste the wine, and then I got to get you out of here. So, you should be able to do this, and it could be your wines or anyone else's, any region. I'm looking for you to recommend the best wine around fifteen, twenty bucks. 20, 22 bucks. I'm looking for a red reco. I'm looking for a white reco. My kids are in their mid, late 20s, 30s. They can't afford $50, $60 bottle of wines. They're not bringing $11 crap supermarket wine that we talked about. What's that wine that was? And you could go category. Like, I think Muscadet for the money is killer. Well, what? Give me me a a kind of reco or two. White wine at that price point, I'd probably finding like a bottle of Vino Verde okay you know, from Portugal okay I think that's um, a great know, record Spanish, or, you know, I think Spanish the values are there and they're making good totally. wine um, for red wine you know the the, the self plug and you know, I know Jake's in the other room listening to this uh, this is good for field blend also we make a Sonoma Valley Zinfandel it's one of the few non-vineyard desert in that in 20, that, in that 20 22 20, buck range uh, you know I, that, I was hoping in, maybe in you the, had in a the, wine. In the low 20s, 25 bucks I a would, bottle. That's great. Um, you know, if it's Wait, not, so give me the exact. So it's the 16600 Zinfandel. S- Sonoma Valley Zinfandel. Sonoma Valley. Yeah, and it's labeled Sonoma. It's labeled Sonoma Valley. And there are other the, Zinfandels that with the estate, designates. There are other vineyard yeah, yeah, designates. Yeah, yeah. This is okay. Know, kind so of like I said, we'll uh, post that. Um, all right, good job on that. Like I said, I'll post that. It'll be in our social media. All right, so every week we taste a different wine on air. When I have a winemaker, why wouldn't I sit here and taste his wines? That's why I asked you and Jake to bring a wine. So um, we are tasting the 16600 2018 Dos Limon Syrah, very important emotional vineyard. 
um, to the family um, on Sonoma Mountain. All right, so tell me a little about this wine. Let's talk about, we talked about the vineyard, talk to me about the vintage, talk to me about anything else. Uh, 2018, great year, um, largest crop in the history of the state of California. Um, no climactic calamity at all. Drama. You know, no, no drama, uh, no heat spikes, no rain, no fire. Um, so it was just a great year. Um, late year, we picked, we picked things late in 2018. It took a long time to get right. Even with all the climate we, we, change yeah, BS. It was just, you know, it's funny, yeah. Um, and um, what I love about this wine is a few things. Um, starting in the 2015 vintage, and this came to me as an idea from, from another winemaker. Uh, we make a little Viognier, comes from the Steel Plow Vineyard. Um, when we press the Viognier, we fill up uh, painter's buckets, you know, five gallon painter's buckets, usually eight to 10 of them, with the skins from the Viognier. I take them to a big giant walk-in freezer and put them in there and wait for the Syrah to come in. Uh, you know, usually two, three weeks later, we'll go pick the Syrah. I'll go take those skins out of the freezer and add them to the to the must right at the beginning of really and so That's it's, you know, it's a little nod to coat roti uh but in california we don't need the sugar from the viognier no. to help we just need aromatics right. and, and textural and the elements is great aromatics and sort of you know for me just kind of like finishes the wine this is you know syrah can be a little rough around the edges sometimes kind of polishes some of those edges um this wine ages super super well um, well it's already got you know, four years of bottle age, which is takes a little of the edges off. All right, so we do a little evaluation. So let's talk color. Yeah. Pretty deep, dark, dark edges, For right? Sure. You know, and, good Syrah. Yeah, and, and the counterintuitively, adding the white grapes to this right. actually helps set that color a little better. Yeah, too. which is crazy. All right, get it up into the schnoz, and get, I suck at uh, nose descriptors. Tell me yeah. what you get on the nose on this particular wine. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. You know, there's, um, there's some, you know, it's not, it's not bacon, but it's just like the bacon fat. Um, which is classic, which is classic, Rome, classic Syrah. Syrah. Um, it's not overwhelming. It's not, but it's not I get in a, a good little, way, a little vegetal. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little like. Right away I got that. And I love that floral, unless it's done wrong. Um, you know, it's not a. Again, it's 2018, so you know maybe it could have gotten riper, but we just had to pull it. Um, but I don't think it's it's not green vegetable. No, it's, no, it's no, like no. Floral there's, herbal vegetable. Yeah, there's a nice um, touch to that. You know, it's little, hard like, not to notice, but it's not negative. All right, let's go yeah. mouthfeel. It's it's mouth filling, and then I want you to tell me it's mouth filling. It's not unctuous right. or glycerin-y, but it's I'd say medium, medium plus. Medium plus, but not overbearing. Uh, you know, I want to feel a wine from the front of the palate to the back of the palate. I don't like when there's so. Holes. Let's go palate. Yeah. So before we talk about how it feels, does the palate mirror what you get on the nose? You know, a little of that bacon fat. You get anything else? Give me some descriptors on the palate. Dark. I was gonna say dark. Fruit. Dark, dark fruit, like oh. past blue to black fruit. Um, you know, a little blackberry kind of experience. Um, there's definitely a good. You know, it's not peppery, but it's sort of like spicy. A little spice to it. A yeah, little it's not like peppery. Sort of essence of it. 
Uh, we would have said pepper or yeah, earlier, it but, like, but there's it's a spice like in there. Hit you over the head with those those uh, pepper kind of notes, but there's just enough sort of like uh, some something to kind of make you sit up and take a little notice. So uh, I think on the palate, it's very you get that initial attack. The mid palate is there, and then I think when you pull the glass away, it, right. it opens up it nicely opens. in the mouth. And, and it opens. This is the thing that you know. I, I mean, I'm still right, and it opens. It opens up as opposed to down. And I think that that, like, at the back of the palate to, to sort of lift up and expand as opposed to, to fall down um, is, is so important to us. What is, what's a great wine pairing for this? Mm. Um, there's two things. There's yeah. what goes with Syrah, there's right. what goes with this wine, what goes with this vintage, and what you think. You know, I, can, I, can I just kind of, like, lean in on... Um, you know, everybody wants to talk lamb and Syrah, um, but I think with this wine not being as sort of like over the top as some Syrahs can be, um, you want to keep it a little lighter than that. Um, to, you know, maybe like uh, some duck breast or something like that. I think it would go great with yeah. duck, but I yeah. think it would be awesome with a juicy burger dripping totally. down. I That's think great. with That's like fatty skirt steak, mm -hmm. which is very in your face, yeah. which other wines can handle, this would be great with it. Yeah. I think in that zone, totally. there is a, a good, you know, you know, with and all of that. All right, so that's the 2018 Dos Limones Syrah from Winery 16600. Sam, we got to wrap up. I told you this would go quickly. We've been doing it an hour and ten. I want to thank our guest, Sam Kotori. Sam Kotori is the proprietor at 16600, Winery 16600, um, out in Moon Mountain in uh, Sonoma. Um, best place to get info online? Yeah, check, we actually just launched a brand new website winery 16 600.com so w-i-n-e-r-y yeah winery 16 the word 600, 600. yeah um and social if we media is great if we want to yeah. follow you on social yeah. media you the winery the right. podcast give me some uh, handles uh 16 is the the winery on instagram and, and twitter Grapes with a view is my my All personal right. Instagram. So Sam's personal is Grapes yeah. with a view, uh, and that one I, I'm probably more active on than the other one. Uh, and then Winemakers Pod. Uh, it's under Winemakers. Is, is the both on Twitter and Instagram? Okay, so uh, and I'll I'll post that stuff too. Yeah. Um, and lastly, because and wherever uh, and if you're in New York, wherever Field Blend is selling the wine is a right. good place to find information about it. Right, and for somebody who's been to over a hundred dead concerts okay. let's talk about the label who designed the label yeah, yeah. We, we forgot about that whole part so our label uh was designed by an artist named stanley mouse say uh, no more to people who yeah, know if you, if you know you know no, and if right. you don't know he's, you actually do know because he's a cultural artist yeah, of his time the things that you know if you close your eyes and picture a poster from san francisco in the 60s what you see stanley mouse made uh, you know, Skull and Roses, Every Journey album. That cover. Skull and Rose gatefold album is yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then it became a great t-shirt yeah, and all yeah, that. The whole deal. So Fillmore West posters, all kinds of crap. Everything. Uh, you know, Steve Miller band with the right. flying, you know, the Pegasus little thing. Uh, and, you know, I grew up with his kids in Sonoma. And when we needed a label, he said, Stanley, what do you got? And we, we expected we'd get something wild and psychedelic. And 
he had just done this oil portrait of a you know, I know woman that's kind of controversial uh, you know it, you know uh, for Stanley Mass so uh, you know his his first of all range of just in styles that he can do uh, but a lot of his contemporary work is these oil-based portraits yeah um, so it's cool is he, he, is he he's alive he's alive how uh, old is he about 60s Maybe seventies. No, he's he's uh, going to be eighty-two oh. or eighty-three this so year. So he was an adult when he was hanging with it. He was maybe yeah. older than them. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Yeah. Um, Very cool. And you know, still going. He has a studio out in Sebastopol. Uh, oh, is he? Yeah, great follow on. on I gotta Twitter get out there and check yeah, that yeah. out. Maybe you'll have to hook me yeah, up yeah. with him. Yeah, if you come out, we'll go out. And yeah, see yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So I want to thank again Sam Kotori. Um, thank you to all our engineers at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. 